Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Benjamin Bergen will join us to discuss the what the F. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Well, of all the aspects of language, swearing is perhaps the most obscene. But what can swearing really reveal about our language, our brains, and ourselves? Well, in the new book, What the F? What Swearing Reveals About Our Language, Our Brains, and Ourselves, the author, Dr. Benjamin Bergen, describes exactly that. Author, Professor Bergen, is a professor of cognitive science at the University of California, San Diego, where he directs the Language and Cognition Laboratory. His writing has appeared in numerous popular and scientific outlets, including Scientific American, Wired, Psychology Today, and again, his new book is entitled What the F? What Swearing Reveals About Our Language, Our Brains, and Ourselves. And Professor Bergen, I'm very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. It's my pleasure. Certainly our pleasure. Certainly a fascinating topic here. You explore the cognitive basis of swearing. I'm curious, how did you become interested in this topic? Well, my career, I've focused on language in general, lots of different dimensions of it, and mostly how uh, we're able to do what you and I are doing right now, so to convey a message through words and then to take those words on your end of translate them into what you think I must have meant for you to understand from them. And uh, as I started to get more interested in the emotional dimensions of language, I found that I was drawn more and more towards profanity because uh, when you look at those instances where people are most emotional or when they're trying to convey uh, emotional experiences or when they're trying to evoke emotions in other people, uh, profanity plays a particularly salient role. And uh so I started to investigate, you know, what, what science there was there and discovered that, well, two things. First, there is some really interesting science and it reveals things that we wouldn't know otherwise about, for example, how the brain works. But secondly, it, it was a story that hadn't really been told in public. You know, we have taboos about talking about these words in public. And so as a result, it was sort of a secret science of swearing. And I decided to sort of bust that open. Why, why do you think that it means somewhat taboo to talk about science of swearing, how uh, you know, prevalent it is in our language? Well, a couple of reasons. You know, we, we learned from childhood onwards that these words are bad, right? We're to- they're called bad words. Uh, kids get punished for using them. They observe adults avoiding them in certain public circumstances. You know, you see one adult chastise another adult for using them in the wrong time or place as a child. And so you internalize that and you have very strong beliefs about about what's right and wrong in, in language and like like with any other sort of cultural behavior. And uh, the consequence is that you bring those beliefs with you throughout your entire life. And so just hearing those words evokes a strong emotional response and oftentimes a negative one. Uh, in addition, I think we have structures in place in our society that make sure that there are certain places and times where those words don't show up. Uh, you know, there's censorship, of course, of media. There's uh, there's punishment that gets doled out. So, for example, 
you could even be a tenured professor at a university. If you use the wrong words in lecture, you could be fired. And that's actually happened in the last couple of years. So I think that there are lots of sort of personal, psychological, and then also cultural reasons why people avoid these words in public. What, what is it then that makes the word uh, profane? A couple things. For one thing, if you look across the world's languages and just ask, what are the words that people and cultures across the world find most offensive? You discover that they tend to be drawn from certain categories of human experience. They tend to be drawn from, and English is an example of this, terms that uh, pertain to religious concepts, words that pertain to sex, and uh, words that pertain to other bodily functions. And then finally, taboo words oftentimes come from words about other groups of people, usually marginalized groups of people or, or others than you. And that's true across from language to language. So with, in Cantonese, the strongest words have to do with sex and bodily functions. In Russian, it's mostly sex. In uh, Quebecois French, it's mostly, actually the strongest ones are drawn from religious terminology in the Catholic tradition. And in contemporary America, at least in the surveys that we run, we find that people find uh, words about other groups of people to be the most offensive. So these are slurs, most of them. But you see this across the world's languages, and that makes us believe that the words that become profane, that become obscene, are not just a randomly selected set of words. These nearly universal tendencies tell us that it's something about what we think of being taboo in our lives that lends words to the profane vocabularies that we have. You know, we, we think of sex as being taboo. That's why, you know, we have... Uh, laws against having sex in public. Um, we think of bodily functions as taboo. That's why bathrooms have doors. Uh, religious concepts and the deployment of them in inappropriate circumstances is taboo. Other groups of people can be taboo. You know, there were laws against uh, uh, mixed race marriages in this country through the end of the 20th century. So uh, there are strong taboos about certain dimensions of human experience. And words about those things that we have taboos about eventually themselves become taboo. It's, it's, it's a transfer of the taboo from the world to the, to the word. But, but that's only part of the story, right? Because we have words about sex, like sex, for example, and words about bodily functions that we might use with our doctors or our toddlers. And so it's not, it's not enough that the word comes from one of these sources. In addition, we have to have a cultural setting that says these particular ones are the ones that we disprefer, the ones that we find inappropriate for formal circumstances. And that gets enforced by the sort of things that I was talking about earlier, by censorship, by, uh, by punishment uh, doled out to kids. These are the signals that tell kids that these are the words that this society decides are, are the bad ones. And so it's a combination of a little bit of um, systematicity across the world in terms of what's taboo in combination with these kind of arbitrary social decisions that are enforced by the practices that we have for inculcating new generations of kids with these beliefs. The words themselves then go beyond just their origins in, in taboo areas of life. They, they take on other meanings. So what sort of function does then swearing have in terms of what kind of ideas do they communicate? Well, profanity largely is used to uh, communicate emotion, whether it's to convey 
my emotional state as the speaker or to evoke an emotional reaction in you. You can see why words that are about taboo topics would come to have that function, right? They, when I say something that's about a taboo topic, when I talk, talk about something that we wouldn't normally want to talk about in, in public, that is an emotional experience for me. It evokes an emotional reaction in you. And it's not surprising that those same words, given that they have this power to elicit physiological reactions in other people, that they would then be deployed for another purpose. They'd sort of be exapted to another function, which is to just do that emotional work um, by itself. So, uh, so the functions that they serve include um, expressing a strong emotional state, and that can be anger, and usually that's the first thing that we think of, right? We think of using profanity to communicate anger, but, uh, but systematic studies have shown that actually that's not the most common use for profanity, whether it's in adults or kids. Profanity is more commonly used to evoke positive social interactions, so uh, I might swear uh, around friends after work to uh, sort of blow off steam or to be funnier or to, uh, or to communicate that I feel comfortable with them and it's, it's an informal interaction or maybe to seem more honest. And, uh, and these functions are um, sometimes successful, sometimes not successful uh, when people use profanity, but they... Um, but they do serve this sort of function of communicating about my emotional state. One sort of really has to be part of a certain group or certain mindset for the uh, message that's uh, conveyed in the profanity to be heard the right way. That's right. We know that so there's been some research on how swearers are perceived. So what, what do people think about you when you uh, use a, a, a profane word in public? And you're exactly right. Your intuition is correct. It depends a lot on what you think the what you think is appropriate in this context. So, uh, if you see someone standing on stage delivering a, a monologue in a in a in a um, uh, in a setting where they're doing like stand-up comedy, let's say, you will not be surprised that they're using profanity, and you'll probably judge them as being honest and funny and so on. But take the exact same person out of that context and stick them in the supermarket and uh, observe them. All of a sudden, you're going to make very different judgments about them. You're going to, you're going to think that they're threatening, that they're aggressive. You might find them unhinged, think that they um, don't understand social norms and might be unpredictable. So setting plays a really important role in how people judge the use of profanity for sure. There are other ways of conveying language, uh, sign language, for example, and of course there are, there are a whole number of bodily gestures which convey sort of similar ideas. Sure, and those, like profanity, show some kind of universal characteristics. They tend, again, to be about body parts and sex and so on, other, other people. Um, but at the same time, uh, they use a very different modality of communication instead of speech uh, or uh, communicated through uh, through sound or through writing. Now they're uh, physical manifestations of the of the communicative signal that have to be viewed through the eyes and so on. Um, and they also have cultural dimensions to them. So the, the the obscene gestures that we use in this country aren't necessarily obscene everywhere else in the world. And a lot of the normal gestures that we use that we think are totally neutral are have very special functions in other places. Uh, so, you know, the, 
the sort of the AOK sign here uh, in other places in the world, particularly in South America, um, is a very very rude gesture that's kind of equivalent to our middle finger. So you know, it, it you see the same sort of the same sort of things that you see with language again in, in gestures. Much of how uh, we think is oftentimes reflected in our language, but it's said that oftentimes our language can uh, influence how we think. So does adopting more swearing then change a little bit about our, our view of the world, or how does that affect our cognitive processes? Well, it's a good question, and a lot of people are worried about swearing for exactly that reason. You know, there's this idea that if you swear more, that will stunt your vocabulary, or it will lead to more uh, aggressive behavior in general. And there have been some studies looking at this. It, it doesn't seem to hold up. So when you look at people who report swearing more or who have a better aptitude to list off swear words quickly and then test their vocabulary, you find that they have a, that in general, people who swear more proficiently also have better active vocabularies. Um, now, whether that's correlation or causation, we don't know, but at the very least, it, it suggests that there's no harm being caused there by the use of profanity. Um, there have been some reports that maybe people who are, uh, who are frequent swearers also show higher intelligence. I don't think that any of those studies really have definitively shown that. So basically, we don't know much about the overall differences if you are a habitual swearer compared to a person who isn't. What we do know is that swearing in the moment can cause changes in your uh, behavior and in the way that you process the world and uh, in what your brain is doing. So one of the sort of most, uh, one of the flashiest studies that has done this looked at in your ability to endure pain. So a lot of people have this intuition that swearing reduces your experience of pain. And so what this researcher did, this is Richard Stevens in the UK, he, uh, <clears throat> he had participants come in and stick their hand into nearly freezing water, and they did so while randomly assigned to either swear or to say something else, some control words, and he just measured how long they could tolerate this really painful but ultimately not harmful uh, experience, and he found that the swearers could hold their hands in about 50% longer, and they also reported afterwards, that, you know, when they were asked how painful was this, they reported experiencing less severe pain, and this has been replicated across a, a number of studies. And the really interesting wrinkle to this actually has to do with how frequently these people swear in their everyday lives. So after, in one replication, he asked people to say afterwards how often they swear, not in, in psychological experiments, but you know, just, uh, just every other day of the week. And what he found was that the people who reported swearing more often in the real world gained less benefit in this uh, hand immersion in cold water task. That is, they uh, maybe were so habituated to swearing that it didn't have as much of an impact on their ability to tolerate pain. So uh, there are a couple of different theories about why uh, swearing might increase your ability to tolerate pain. One of them is that it sets up a kind of a, a fight-or-flight response that uh, we, we know that something like this happens. When people swear, their heart rate increases, their blood pressure increases, they start sweating, they get a boost of adrenaline, and this is all consistent with the fight-or-flight response. And part of what happens in a fight-or-flight response is that you, um, you have this hypoalgesic effect. You have a better endurance for pain. And that makes sense, right? If you're going to, if you're uh, 
in, in the wild and uh, you see a lion, you have to decide if you're going to fight it or flee it. Either way, it's going to be painful. <laughs> running, running fast hurts. Um, fighting a lion is likely to hurt. You're, you're probably going to need to have some increase in, in pain endurance. And so it's possible that that's what's going on when people swear, that they are activating this, uh, this system that evolution has given us to deal with stressful situations and that that's increasing their ability to, to, to tolerate pain. Uh, those people who swear a lot, they're a way of, of finding something else that then could activate their, uh, their fight or flight response. Well, there are lots of things that can activate fight or flight. It, you know, at the bare minimum, other sorts of emotional vocalizations can do it. There are, so for example, uh, martial arts, but lots of other sorts of uh, sports, tennis, actually, in some cases, uh, athletes will vocalize grunts or screeches or screams that, uh, that appear to do something quite similar in that it activates their, uh, activates, increases adrenaline and, and so on. So it's quite possible that other things will do, uh, will have a similar function. Other things, though, that are similar in terms of the brain physiology that's responsible for them. So vocalizing a screech in pain or anger or something like that actually uses quite similar systems to the brain as, uh, as spontaneous swearing does. In your investigation of, of swearing uh, and our brains, it was, was there anything particularly surprising you came across that you, you hadn't heard or thought of before? Again, something of a, a taboo science. Well, actually, that thing that we were just getting at was, was something that was new to me. You know, so we, as you know, cognitive scientists, cognitive neuroscientists of language, typically think of particular parts of the brain as having, of doing the, the heavy lifting for language. These are uh, parts of the brain that are in the cerebral cortex, so that's, you know, the abstract, complex, evolutionarily new and uh, very human uh, outside of the brain, in particular in the left hemisphere, and particular regions in the left hemisphere of the brain have names, and uh, they're named after people who discovered that they serve functions for language. Broca's area seems to have uh, some involvement in articulating language, putting together words, putting together sentences. It's in the frontal lobe. Um, Wernicke's area in the temporal lobe has some functions revolving around associating meanings with, their, uh, with, with words. So this is kind of the canon, right? This is what we, we know about language in the brain, and we've known this for hundreds of years. Well, it turns out that that's not the whole story, and we know that because of profanity. It turns out that people oftentimes have damage to one or both of these areas, uh, in particular Broca's area in the frontal lobe. Um, people with strokes, for example, oftentimes end up with uh, reduced blood flow and therefore some cell death in Broca's area. And the consequence is that they have trouble art articulating language. It's known as Broca's aphasia. And um, it, it's not just strokes. Uh, Alzheimer's can produce this traumatic brain injury. Oftentimes, people with Broca's aphasia will lose their ability to produce language. You can give them a, a, a picture book with really easy to name things, a dog, a cat, a horse, and they can't name them. They just can't articulate those words. They can't find them. And they'll be frustrated, and it'll sound like, uh, uh, goddammit. <laughs> these swear words will come out of nowhere and are so surprising because these are patients who just cannot articulate words, and yet there are a couple of words that get preserved. And they're words that come out when they're frustrated or happy or surprised or angry. They're emotion-conveying words. This tells us that profanity can be generated by something that's totally separate from what we thought was the set of brain systems 
responsible for language. They dissociate. As people have started to dig and, and try to find what these other possible generators of language are, we found that they aren't in the left hemisphere, like the rest of language, and they aren't on the cerebral cortex, like, like a lot of languages. They're buried deep inside the evolutionarily old heart of the brain in the limbic system, which does emotion regulation, among other things. And the particular brain system that seems to be implicated is a little part called the basal ganglia. And the basal ganglia have a couple of jobs, and maybe the most relevant one is when you're experiencing some emotion and you need to select an action, they're responsible for picking the right one and suppressing all the other ones. Sort of given that you have a fight or flight option, what are you going to do? Um, and uh, when people have damage to the basal ganglia, they have dysfunction with respect to profanity. So, for example, there's a case study that, uh, that I found of a, of a patient who was a typical actually bilingual, um, spoke French and, and uh, Hebrew, and he had damage to his basal ganglia, and then all of a sudden, uh, he lost the ability to swear. The rest of language was preserved, but, but no profanity. And we see the reverse of that when people have other conditions of the basal ganglia. So you're probably familiar with Tourette syndrome. One feature of Tourette syndrome, one symptom that occurs somewhere between 20 to 50% of the time it's called coprolalia, and that's the uncontrollable production of taboo words and phrases. And it just so happens that the part of the brain that's different in people with Tourette syndrome compared to neurotypical people is the basal ganglia. Different density or different con connectivity, uh, different volume, it depends on the study, but we, we we're coming to, to think pretty strongly that the basal ganglia might be responsible for sending a signal to your motor system to produce profanity in the case where you are, um, where you're frightened or surprised or aroused or whatever. And it's not something we talk about much, but it's really fascinating from an evolutionary perspective because this is the same system, this system that loops in the basal ganglia to create vocalizations expressing emotion. That is the same system that other animals use to communicate through, uh, through vocalizations. So, when your dog whines or, or growls or snarls, uh, she's using a system that's the homologue to our, the loop that runs through the basal ganglia to produce uh, vocalizations in humans. So we have two pathways to produce language. One that's evolutionarily old, it's, it's sort of uh, reflexive, it's driven by strong spontaneous emotions. And there's another one that's evolutionarily new and cortical and rational and abstract. And uh, we can produce some of the same words using those two systems, but just for very different purposes and with different mechanisms. So that's something really cool that I didn't know beforehand. Does that sort of explain a little bit about why swearing has something of an appeal, is that it, it serves to function in this parallel way uh, to express very uh, deep emotional ideas that uh, we, uh, our, our logical brain really can't do? Yeah, I mean, in the, in the same way that humans are simultaneously rational, thoughtful, and also extremely emotional animals, um, it sits alongside the um, uh, it sits alongside our more 
a better studied and maybe better liked capacities for language and serves a really vital function to do something that humans need to do, which is to immediately and spontaneously and viscerally convey to other members of our species things that would be watered down if we put them into nice, clean, well-ordered, well-reasoned sentences about dominance, about affiliation, about fear. It, it's, the, it's a way for us to communicate our hot cognition instead of our cool cognition. Do you think that's the reason why you learn a foreign language? The first ones you learn are the swear words. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think because they have all of those duties, because they are so lively, because we feel them so strongly in our first language, I think we're attracted to them. And, and swear words, just because we're on it, swear words in a second language, they're really special in a way, because we know that they have this power, but they don't have this power over us. When you think about it, when the, the words that you know in a second language that you've learned later on in life, the swear words, they don't get you viscerally. They don't get your adrenaline flowing and your palms sweating. You know that they do that for other people, but they don't do that for you because you didn't have that experience over the course of childhood uh, of caregivers chastising you and so on for using them. So, so they're kind of a free pass in a way. They're a, they're a really powerful tool that, you, that doesn't work on you. And that's a, that's a pretty cool thing. Well, again, the new book is called What the F? What Swearing Reveals About Our Language, Our Brains, and Ourselves. The author, Professor Benjamin Bergen. And uh, Professor Bergen, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It was really fun. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.